Generation Church Podcast. We hope you find this encouraging. Come visit us in South Oceanside. Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, leading at the port town of Perga. There John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to Antioch of Pisidia. On the Sabbath, they went to the synagogue for the services. After the usual readings from the book of Moses and the prophets, those in charge of the service sent them this message. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. So Paul stood, lifted his hand to quiet them, and started speaking. Men of Israel, he said, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. The God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors and made them multiply and grow strong during their stay in Egypt. Then with a powerful arm, he led them out of their slavery. He put up with them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Then he destroyed seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, God gave them judges to rule until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, who reigned for 40 years. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who God's promised Savior of Israel. Before he came, John the Baptist preached that all the people of Israel needed to repent of their sins and turn to God and be baptized. As John was finishing his ministry, he asked, Do you think I am the Messiah? No, I am not. But he is coming, and I am not even worthy to be his slave and untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers, you sons of Abraham and also you God-fearing Gentiles, this message of salvation has been sent to us. The people in Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as the one the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him, and in doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words that, they are, that are read every Sabbath. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. When they had done all that the prophecies said about him, they took him down from the cross, placed him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead, and over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to the people of Israel." And now we are here to bring you this good news. The promise was made to our ancestors, and God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by raising Jesus. This is what the second psalm says about Jesus. You are my son. Today I have become your father. For God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. He said, I will give you the sacred blessings I promised to David. Another psalm explains it more fully. You will not allow your holy one to rot in the grave. This is not a reference to David, for after David had done the will of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. No, it was a reference to someone else, someone whom God raised and whose body did not decay. Brothers, listen, we are here to proclaim that through this man Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. 
Be careful, don't let the prophet's words apply to you. For they say, look, you mockers, be amazed and die. For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you about it. As Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak about these things again next week. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, and the two men urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. The following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous. So they slandered Paul, and they argued against whatever he said. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, It was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you, Jews. But since you have rejected it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. For the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for his message. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. So the Lord's message spread throughout that region. Then the Jews stirred up the influential religious women and the leaders of the city, and they incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of the town. So they shook the dust from their feet as a sign of rejection and went to the town of Iconium. And the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Great job, Natalie. Praise be to God. <laughs> Natalie and her husband Brian have been at the church now for a little while. She's jumped in with Roman and the youth. And so super pumped to see the influence she's going to be bringing to our church. That's actually one of the joys of this, this job as, as a pastor is I get to do life with just amazing people. Uh, you guys in the room, uh, it, it's a joy. I get to be exposed to so many different people from different backgrounds that are a blessing. Uh, one of those people, and I wish he was here so I could make fun of him in person, but is uh, Pete and Dara DeSoto, specifically Pete. I'll make fun of Pete, not Dara. She's amazing. And so is, so is Pete. But, and their kids, the whole DeSoto family is rad, and I've gotten to know them over about the last year they're in our life group, and, um, and if you know Pete at all, you start to talk to him, and you're like, after, you know, just a minute or so, you're like, dude, what the heck is up with your voice? And, uh, and if you've heard him talk, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but you go, what, what's up with your voice? And then if you hear his story, oh, because well, oh, he was shot in the neck when he was living in El Salvador, and a guy jumped in the middle of the road with a mask on and opened fire into their truck as they were doing some missionary work while they lived down there. And if you were with us in August this summer, him and Dara shared their story up here. We did a This Is Us series. I highly recommend you go back and watch the YouTube of that or, or listen to the podcast of it because uh, it's an incredible story of God's grace. But Pete, because he was shot, it damaged his vocal cords and all that. He still has to deal with that through the rest of his life. It'll never get better. And, and people will joke with him, like, because he does sales. He's in electrical equipment sales, and he's on the phone a lot with people. And they'll go, dude, what's up with your voice? Were you out late last night, man, or what? Or like, are you screaming at the kids? And he's like, well, you know, no, I was uh, shot in the neck in El Salvador. <laughs> Jerk. No, I'm just kidding. And so, <laughs> I love it. Hey, man, it's like, what a big league move you can pull. But Pete's like, Pete's super intentional because at the bottom of all of his emails, he has a, a, a little hyperlink, and it says, uh, what's wrong with my voice, question mark. And you can click on it, and it'll take you to a YouTube video, and he shares his story of, like, what happened to him. And it's really cool because I just love this about Pete. He's so intentional because he shares that, hey, look, my identity is not a victim. My identity is I'm a survivor. I'm an overcomer. That's who I am. 
And, and then if you, if you go further, it takes you to a little website he has for his business and his ministry because he's still, actually, he's in El Salvador right now because he's continuing his work for his nonprofit. Um, and then he's also got some really cool shots because he's a bro of him like surfing and ripping some drives off the tee, which is hilarious. Um, but, but what I really love about Pete is this intentionality. It's like God has given him this story that has a lot of pain in it, but he says, you know what, the story that God's given me I'm going to use this. I'm going to be intentional because this is a way for me to build a bridge to people to point them to Jesus. Like when someone asks you, hey, what the heck happened? I can point, well, I have hope. I have a Savior that got me through this in Jesus. Which is interesting because there was another Pete called Peter that wrote to another church in Turkey 2,000 years ago these words. If someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. That's cool. Pete, just modeling his bro, Peter. And as we uh, zoom back into Acts, if you want just to catch you up a little bit, Acts is Luke's volume two. Luke wrote uh, just the documented Jesus' life and his teachings and then his death and his resurrection. And then Luke wrote volume two, which is the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Apostles, however word you want to use there. And it's showing the history of the church, how people followed Jesus, but then as he died and resurrected, and they were filled with his spirit, and then they began to do and teach as he had done and spread his kingdom. And so as we dive back into Acts 13, we're picking up in the storyline of now it's Jesus in the disciples, in his church that are going and influencing and impacting the world. And so specifically in Acts 13, it's the first we call the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. It's where they're going to the ends of the earth. Jesus told them when the Spirit come, he'd make you my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we're actually, it seems pretty clear they didn't believe him that ends of the earth was really ends of the earth. But now they're starting to get it, and they're going. They're going into the Greek and Roman world at the time. They're way outside of Jerusalem at this point. And we're seeing how as Paul and Barnabas went, it wasn't just like happenstance. They actually had some plans. They had a rhythm and a flow to them. And they were, as I think Pete is, prepared to share. They're, they find on-ramps. And so the reason I'm excited about this topic is because in our culture today, I, we, this is really important. As Leslie Newbigin, the, the missiologist, once wrote, we, we are preaching the gospel in a pluralistic society. That's a big word. It just means we live in a society that has many different beliefs, many different philosophies, not many of them are compatible, not quite sure what to believe or who to turn to, different definitions of what it means to be a human, how to flourish, all these things. Well, that's the type of culture we live in, but which is interesting because that's the exact type of culture they lived in 2,000 years ago. The Roman world was just like ours in many, many ways. And so we can extract from them what it means to be able to be prepared to share in a diverse belief system that's around us. And I think for students in young life, we think about that. We're, we're going on campuses. We're running into people that come from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of belief systems and stuff. So how, how do we share Christ in a way that's appropriate and helpful and hopefully powerful? That's what we want to look at today. Because Paul and Barnabas have a, a way of operating. And I'm going to break it down as these three ways. They know what to look for. They know what to say and they know what to expect, okay? That's the three things we're looking at. What do they look for? What do they say? And what do they expect? So let's dive in. Verse 13. It says, Paul and his companions left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia and landed in the port town of Perga. And there John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. I'll come back to that in a future week. Verse 14. But Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to Antioch of Pisidia. So I have a map for you. Sometimes it's helpful to just look at the graphic. 
They had left, the, you see on the east side in Syria, they'd come up from Jerusalem to Syria and Antioch, and that's when they began their journey. Matt touched on their trip to Cyprus last week, and now it's that blue arrow going up into Europe, Eastern Europe, where they're hitting Pamphylia. And now they're going to take this trip from Perga on the coast into Antioch of Pisidia. There was many Antiochs in that day, kind of like Springfields in the United States. They're all over the place. But this trip, one of the things that maps don't do is they don't capture how stinking hard this stuff was. Like that trip that they took, just this little one in like five words, it's 100 miles on foot. It's a 3,600 feet gain in elevation. It's likely what Paul writes later to the Galatians is that he got sick. It was probably malaria that was common in the lowlands of Perga. So he's traveling sick for 100 miles up 3,600 feet of elevation through the Taurus Mountains. And then on top of that, like a notorious road for bandits and robbers to mug people, kill them, take their stuff. So uh, just imagine like the sketchiest street in your neighborhood. We all know a place in town you shouldn't be walking in if you don't live there or it's at night or whatever. That's this road, 100 miles long. That's where they're at. I just say that as like a, sometimes we forget that these were real human beings that were like, okay, we got to get to this place, but dude, we may not make it. Like we might not die. And in fact, all of the apostles, save a couple, were or, or early disciples in this story, were killed eventually. Thankfully, not in this story specifically, because they actually make it on this trip. They make it to Antioch, Pisidia, and this is where they get to work, and we're going to dive in. Verse 14 says, On the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue for service, and after the usual readings from the book of Moses and the prophets, those in charge of the service sent a message Hey, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. So they have a flow. Every time we're going to see this in Acts, they get to a town, they're going to find the synagogue. And they're going to go from there. Why synagogue? Well, synagogues were a place where there was already spiritual conversations happening. So that people are already leaning into things of God. And Paul had a reputation. Matt talked about this a little bit last week. Paul had a reputation. He was well known. He had sat under Gamaliel, who was like the highest ranking doctorate of Jewish law of that day. So this dude had a reputation. He was a former Pharisee. So when he would travel and they would see him, they would go, hey, do you have anything to share with us? This is a, actually a customary process in synagogues of the day. After the readings, they would invite someone to comment. And so today, as we think about our lives... We have people in places of invitation. There are certain places that we are invited to speak into and others were not. This might sound really stupid to you, but, and it is in many ways. But I went to San Diego State, and I was in a fraternity. That's the stupid part. Okay, so and I, was in, I was in Sigma Chi fraternity. Sorry, Maloney. It wasn't that bad. He got a bro in here. So anyway, so, but I was the, the president of the chapter my junior year. And, uh, and yeah, I'm not going to say any more about that. But so... Junior year, so if I at any point go back down to the Delta Psi chapter at State, I can walk into their Sunday evening. Actually, Ryan could too, just as a former bro alumni. We could walk in, go, hey, I'm an alumni, and we could sit in their chapter meeting. And then at some point, they would say to us, hey, alumni, do you have anything to share? We could get up, we could basically share whatever we want. It's, it's one of those things, it's like, it's just street cred. It's like, you've been here. Actually, we could go to pretty much any chapter in the country of a Sigma Chi and sit in the chapter room and have an opportunity to share. It's just one of those things. We all get those, actually. And maybe for you students, it's a, it's a team you're playing on. It's a group of friends that you have. But you've earned street cred in some way with them where you have the ability to speak to them in a way that other people can't. 
You know, as a coach in football, a lot of times parents would tell me, and they're like, man, I'm so glad you talked to my kid about that because I've been telling them that for 10 years. And then they, you said it once, and now they're finally doing it. There's something about relationships that we build that give you access into real places of people's lives. It's not just silly stuff. It's like you need each other. Your friend group is really important for your life. And all of us have these places that we have influence where people actually let us into the real us. And so there's relational things where there's people and places of invitation, but then there's also the content of the conversation. And this is what Paul does next. He says, Paul stood, verse 16, and he lifted his hand to quiet them, and he started speaking. He says, men of Israel and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. At this point, Paul basically, and I'm not going to read every verse of it because I'm going to summarize this for you. He basically shares the whole history of the Jewish people with them. And what he's doing is he's, he's sort of affirming them. He's like, look, all of the scriptures, all the Jewish scriptures are all true, and I believe them, and these are my people as well as yours. So he's saying, look, I'm with you guys. He doesn't come blazing in, hey, everything, you guys are all idiots, and everything you've ever, always believed is wrong. Like that, that's not how he operates. If you see a ministry that operates like that, where the first thing they say is, here, I'm going to tell how, how wrong everyone is, you, I would say a very unsuccessful ministry. He doesn't come in blazing like that. He comes in, and first he finds, where can I agree and affirm? And he starts with the scriptures. He says, I can agree with you and affirm to you that all of our scriptures are true. All of that history is true. We actually saw Peter do this in chapter 2. We saw Stephen do this right before they killed him. Didn't go so well, but he tried. Chapter 7. And he says, look, I agree, and this is what Paul says, I agree in this. God saved our people. He brought, he brought us out of slavery in Egypt. Remember that, guys? Yeah, we remember that. Hey, God provided for them in the wilderness, put up with them even. Yeah, you remember that? Yeah, we remember that. He gave us the land. He gave us prophets. Remember, he gave us the priests so we'd know them. He gave us judges to rule, like not, not court judges, but military judges. And then God gave us kings. Remember that, guys? Yeah, yeah, we all agree. Okay, and then God sent some prophets that said that a Messiah was going to come through King David. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, we agree. But guess what? That guy came. And John the Baptist, that you guys have heard about, John the Baptist was saying that this final king was going to come. Remember how he was saying all those things? Yeah, it happened. And this is how he ends. Finally, verse 23, and it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who is God's promised Savior of Israel. He says, brothers, you sons of Abraham, and also you Gentiles, this message of salvation has been sent to us. The people in Jerusalem and their leaders, they didn't recognize Jesus as, as the one that the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words that are read every Sabbath. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyways. And when they had done all that the prophecy said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And now we are here to bring you this good news, the promise was made to our ancestors, and God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by raising Jesus. This is just really critical for us. God, Paul contextualizes. He knows what they believe, and he says, look, I believe so much what you believe, but you missed something. Like, it, it was good, but it's not all good. Look, there's something off here. Our history, our law, our prophets, all of that, the law of Moses was intended to point us to our inability to be able to live good enough to get in, so to speak. Those things are all pointing us towards to another prophet priest, the true and better prophet priest, an eternal king that was going to come, Jesus. That's what that stuff was for. But instead of our people seeing it, they killed him. Can you believe that? They, they killed him. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus is the one who the prophets were foretelling. He's the one that we'd all been waiting for. But they killed him. But check it out. It's all good because he raised from the dead. Actually, we can still have hope in him. 
And today, friends, I think this is very helpful for us as we go about our daily lives and we're interacting with people that don't know Christ yet, is that we, we have the opportunity to pray and discern, God, who and where have you given me favor with people? Who are these people? It's not everybody all the time. It's There's people that God has placed in our lives and around us. And you don't need to start with, hey, so I just want to tell you you're wrong and you should be believing this. You can say, actually, and so I believe in some of the things you, you believe as well, but instead of pointing to that thing, I'd love to point you and build a bridge over to Jesus. This is our first observation for this morning. We prepare to share by looking and listening. That's, that's how we prepare to share. We look, we listen prayerfully. Paul knew what people believed. And I understand there's actually two ways to teach this text. Uh, you could, I, I could have gone through and pointed out everything Paul just said in the verses he's grabbing from Isaiah and Psalms and all that. I just want to take what he did as my point today. What are, they, what are they doing in these situations? But it's important that we understand, that we look and we listen. What do people believe? What are they putting their hope in? What is their confidence for the future in? What are they looking to to find life in all of these things? It's okay to ask those things. In Josh Shatra's book, Telling a Better Story, it's called How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age. He addresses a lot of assumptions that secular people have about life. And one of them, and I've heard this many times, is just, I don't need God. Just uh, Sometimes it comes out with, well, I'm glad that works for you. It's just uh, it's something I don't need. I don't really care. And many people believe, and I was like this for a lot of my life, that I have all of I need until, until I come to a point in my life where I've accomplished a lot, I seem to have a lot, and that nagging sensation that there's still something else is still there. And what is that? Why do I keep, why do I still need something more? And so what our media does, what our consumeristic American culture does, it tells us, well, if you feel that way, that's just because you have the wrong stuff. You need better stuff. You need newer stuff. You have the wrong friends. You're in the wrong job. That's why you're not satisfied. You just purchased the wrong stuff. You need a bigger TV. You need, you need to swap out. You got a bad girlfriend. You got a bad boyfriend. Or maybe you married the wrong person. That's it. You married the wrong person. You just got to, what? Here's the remedy. Trade up. That's the remedy that consumerism offers to much of our woes. Trade up. Get more. Get better. Get new. It's like that old proverb, what's the richest man in the world say when they ask him how much money is enough? Just a little bit more. Because it's a cycle. Sometimes we call it the rat race. Deceived, it's a deception that we're deceived that satisfaction is just around the corner. If only I could blank. And so there's this nagging sensation that there's a, there's a hole inside me that's supposed to be filled. And this is where a Christian comes and has an opportunity to say, I understand and for me, I totally understand this feeling because this was my nagging sense of incompleteness. But you come along and you can say, I, I know why you feel that way. I know what that longing is. And actually, here's the deal. You were created by a God that designed you with purpose. You actually have a hole in your heart, and it's God-sized, and only he can fill it. And, and there's a reason that even when people say, I don't believe in God, we intuitively live our lives as if they have meaning. Because we can offer, because you're made in the image of a God who creates and gives meaning and gives purpose. That's why that nagging sensation is there. But because of sin, we don't look to him to fill that hole. We start to look to other things. 
We start to look to ourselves. We start to look to people. We start to look as to stuff to fill it, and it can't. But there is that hole that Christ has come to fill. And not just fill, but to overflow, he says. River of living water to overflow. This is what St. Augustine said many, many years ago. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. See, being prepared to share is is listening and looking for those on-ramps to share. And then, secondly, it's our second observation, is we can be prepared by knowing what to share. Because there does come a time when the listening and the looking is over, and there's that crunch time to actually share something. And this is what Paul does. He says, brothers, listen. We are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of your sins. And everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. This is the, one of the simplest, most beautiful gospel messages in Scripture. I'm so glad Luke captures it. He's like, through the finished work of Jesus, there's forgiveness of your sin. All the wrong that you have done is wiped clean. And, and not just forgiveness, but everyone who believes is made right. There's a theological term there of justification. You are justified. You now stand before God, as Paul writes later to the Colossians, holy and blameless without a single fault. Forgiven, made right. It's not if you're a good enough person that somehow God will, maybe if you get right enough, he'll love you. No, no, it's not what really matters is you're a good person, although, yeah, I do believe being a good person is an important thing. No, no, it's not about that. The gospel is not about making bad people good. The gospel is about making dead people alive. That there's a big difference there. Religion is how do you get bad people, give them some tools, and so they can live good lives. No, the gospel is you're dead, and God says, I'm going to give you new life. I'm going to die so you can have life. This is what Paul writes to the Ephesian church later. He says in verse 4 of chapter 2, God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead, I'm not making that term up. He says, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. As they're sharing, you can hear it. There's both an invitation. Look, Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Jesus actually come. He wants to meet you. He's made a way to life. He laid his life down so you could have it. There's also in here correction. He says this is what the law of Moses could not do. I mean, like, there's a point in our our lives with people where there's a point of things that are believed. That ain't going to get you there, by the way. As long as you hold on to that, it's going to kill you. The law of Moses cannot do this for you. Christ can. The law was intended to point us to our sin. The law was important. The uh, existed text to show us our need for a Savior, that we actually couldn't live up to the standard of God and his holiness and point us to our need to be saved by something outside of ourselves. That Christ has come. He's come to save us and change us and give us new life. The gospel message, friends, hasn't changed since, since Paul was alive. It's the exact same message today. If you're here and you've never heard it, this is the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life in your place. He died for your sins so you can be forgiven. And if you believe in his work, not yours, but in his work, you are saved and you are made right and pleasing in God's eyes. All the ways you wish God would see you are true in Christ forever. Promise. 
It's gospel is not me pointing you to another religion, trade these things out. No, it's me pointing you to a person. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that corrective piece, I get this. This could be hard. I don't like doing this in relationships. But there comes a time when the most loving thing you can do for somebody is, is actually say a word that they don't want to hear. I am convinced that some of the best friends I ever had were the ones that were willing to risk hurting my feelings to tell me something I need to know. You've heard me share some of those stories on Sundays. It's loving when you say there is a lie that you believe that is holding you captive. It's, whole, it's, it's you've got you stuck. When there's an addiction that it can't be broken, it, there's a loving point when someone says, the thing that's going on here is actually killing you, and I don't want to see it happen anymore. And Paul says this is what the law could not do. There's something that they need to move away from. Stop looking to the law to make you right with God. Look to Christ alone. In theological terms, that's justification by grace alone, by faith alone. The law couldn't save them, wouldn't save them. And in love, he's gracefully exposing. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're gracefully exposing philosophies of our day that lead to death. I mean, there's a, there's a proverb. There's a way that seems right to a man. In the end, it leads to death. It's, it's, a, it's a loving act to expose those things in grace, humility, obviously. Often, not always, um, as a pastor, I get to sit with people that are going through stuff. And again, not always, but often, people are disappointed. They're dissatisfied in their lives. And in my own life and in others, there are points where we have tried to find satisfaction. We have tried to find our life's meaning and purpose in something other than God, and it is woefully letting us down. And because we've put hope onto something that can't sustain the weight of our hopes, those things start to crumble, and they let us down, and then we're mad at them. If you're doing this with your spouse, they cannot carry that load to make you happy. They were never designed by God to make someone else happy. Only he can provide that joy. And so to remove that burden from them, receive love from him, and then give it to them is critical for the health of our relationships. Not just spouses, anybody. Other human beings cannot sustain the longings of your soul. Neither can a device. Neither can college acceptance. Neither can success in sports or career. It it can't satisfy the longings of your soul, although it may give you a drip for a little while. But I know it can. And he has a name. And his name is Jesus. And in him you will find life. And he says if you seek first his kingdom, all those other things will be added unto you. So this is how we're prepared to share, friends, as we go into our world. We're, we know what to look for. We know what to share. This is what Paul says. And lastly, we, we know what to expect, or we are prepared on what to expect. See, the journey of these guys ends with both rejection and reception. And we should expect both of those. You've been doing this long enough, you know. Rejection's coming. That's what we see. I'm actually going to end start with that one. And verse 45 says, some of the Jews saw the crowd. See, people were so stoked at the message of the gospel that they went and got all their friends, and this is the whole city showed up. But it says in verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous, so they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. So he's talking, they're shouting him down. It's like a university speaker. Then in verse 50, it says that then the Jews stirred up the influential religious women. Oh, now you know it's getting bad. And the leaders of the city, <laughs> everyone's getting in on this. 
And they incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town. Ran them out of town. See, there's gospel progress, and then there's gospel pushback. That's, that's gonna, we're going to see this over and over and over in Acts. You'll see the gospel. Things will progress, and there'll be a massive pushback. Look, we didn't know this. This is happening in our church. We've, we've felt this as a church. When you start taking back ground, when people are getting saved, when people are getting discipled, when they're growing in their relationship with Christ, the enemy is going to counterattack. He will. He is. I've seen this so many times. Somebody gets saved. They get baptized. They start, a, they start attending a Bible study. All of a sudden, all hell breaks loose in their life. And they're like, what the heck's going on? And like, maybe it's because I'm going to church. I'm like, you know what? You may come to Christ, and your life may get worse. I'm just here to tell you. Th- circumstantially, things may get worse. They'll see a lot of heads nodding, you know. Why? There's an enemy of your soul, friends. There's an enemy of your soul. This is not just a battle of ideas. There is a being, Scripture tells us about over and over again, that wants to kill you. And if he can't kill you, he wants to ruin your life. He hates that you're an image bearer. He hates the image of God that's in you. And every single one of you have it. So every single one of you is on his target map. And if you start to grow, the fight's coming. But we know who wins. And we know who has all authority because that's exactly what Jesus said. All authority has been given unto me and now go and make disciples. He said that first. Don't go wondering what's going to happen. Go. But we got to see here, there's, there's pushback because there's been progress. That's the way that works. There had been progress. There had been freedom coming and pe- people are coming Back, verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak about these things the next week. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, and the two men urged them, continue to rely, not on the law, continue to rely on the grace of God. And the following week, get this, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. Imagine the whole city of Oceanside showing up down in the amphitheater because someone's sharing the gospel, that'd be insane. We can tell by this phrase here, continue to rely on the grace of God, that these people have become believers. They've received the grace of God. This is the opposite of the law. This, people are getting saved. And you know what bothers me? Because it's, this is me as well. Is There's a mindset that we have that ain't nobody interested in Jesus. Man, just keep that. No one cares. Nobody wants to hear about that. But guess what? That is the exact opposite of what's happening all over the globe. Of the seven continents, there's only two where the church is shrinking. It's here, North America, and Europe. In all other five, the church is exploding the growth beyond what it's ever done in world history. That's the fact of what's happening on the globe. But you would think, because you listen to our media, that the church is just this bygone thing, these holdouts, these religious weirdos. It's not true. Nor is it true scripturally. What's happening here? People are responding. He's sharing the gospel and people say, yes, this is what I've wanted. This is, this is what I've hoped for. And all throughout Acts, who's come to faith? Everybody. Priests, the Pharisees, Saul himself, who was killing people and murdering them, put them in jail. He's following Christ now. You've got Roman officials, Roman soldiers, poor, rich, everybody. They're coming in. The gospel is breaking through, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And what we see in this city with the whole city turning out means that it wasn't just Jews getting their friends here. The Gentiles, the people in this city, went home, the non-Jews went home after hearing this, told all their friends and family, and they all came back out. This is our third observation from this morning. 
We are prepared by setting our expectations. We need to know what to expect. And the challenge this morning I have is for myself and for all of us is like, why are we living so timidly and defensively right now in these days of our life? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but gates are not offensive weaponry. They're defensive. Who is on offense? Us. The gates of hell aren't doing nothing. It's us. It's the light. It's the light of Jesus that pushes back darkness. We're on offense. I have never seen a game in sports one where one team has zero points. They say defense wins championships, but defense gets you to championships. Offense wins championships, by the way. But defense can shut another team out, but it doesn't get you any points. And nobody wins with zero points on the board. you got to play offense. I know that's, you know, I'm a jock, so that's where my mind goes. But here, in light of Jesus being on offense, saving people, why are we playing defense all the time? Why do we bubble wrap our lives? Parents, I'm speaking to myself too. But why do we bubble wrap our kids? I, don't get me wrong. We need to use wisdom and discernment about the situations and the media and the types of things we put in front of them, okay? Please don't mishear me on this. But why are we bubble wrapping them when we should give them a sword and a shield? The sword of God's word and the shield of faith. That's what he said. Like kids, hey, you're going to school today. There's a bunch of stuff. Hey, go make a play, man. You got Jesus with you. Go sit next to that kid who's got no one to sit next to him. Someone's getting bullied, stand up for him. What? I don't care if you get beat up. I care more that you show courage. God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of self-control. Friends, have we got, forgot the power of God? I don't want to play defense with my life. I don't want to make this, oh, it's going to be like... I value safety in some definition of the term, of course, but like, I'm not here to play it safe. Why are we playing it safe? Why are we so afraid that somebody might dislike us because of our faith? Have you not read what we've been reading through? Now, again, some people are, you're unlike because you're a jerk, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. They're unliked because they're sharing about Jesus. There's a big difference. I just think we have believed a lie. We're being held captive by a lie that nobody wants to hear about Jesus. And I just want to say, I want to renounce that lie. Maybe you need to, too, over your life. There are people in our lives that actually are starving to find out. And I know this by going to campus for 10 years. There are kids that will go their entire life from kindergarten all the way through high school, and no one will have ever told them that there's a God who loves them. There's one who designed them. The things that they long for actually have a fulfillment somewhere in the person of Jesus. That even the bad things in their life can be redeemed. They don't need to give in to depression and, and hopelessness. No one's given them a chance to hear that message. Why? Because we all shut up. I don't want to say nothing. Again, I'm preaching to myself. I don't want to shame you with any of these things. I'm just saying we have believed a lie. That right from the father of lies mouth, you should keep your mouth shut because nobody wants to hear anything about Jesus or none of that. And guess what? Some people don't want to hear it. That's fine but some do. Dang, we will have missed out so much on what the harvest he has for us. Because you know how this story ends? What we can expect 
We can expect that people will be thankful that we shared there's a God who loved them and gave himself for them. That's how this, verse, this whole section ends in verse 52. The believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Joy and in fullness of the Spirit. Which is like, how is that possible? Their friends just got ran out of town. Did you know? It ends with a mob chasing them out of town. And they're like, we're stoked. And not, that mob didn't mean that, that Paul and Barnabas got chased out of town. That meant drama for everybody involved that was still in town. But I believe people were still ticked off. But they had Jesus. They had a mission now. They had the same God who had been working through all of history was working in them. As Paul argued, that the same God that chose Israel and led them out of slavery is the same God who is now choosing Gentiles and leading them out of a greater slavery to sin. And it's that same God that Paul preaches in this message that chose them. It's the same God that made them multiply. It's the same God that led them out of the land. It's the same God that gave them judges. And it's the same God that gave them kings. It's the same God that came to die for their sins. It's the same God who rose from the grave. It's the same God who fulfilled all of his promises throughout all generations in Christ. It's the same God who made him a light to the Gentiles. And it's the same God right here who's including them in his plans. And now they have been chosen by him and are firmly in his hands. The key to all that is that this is his story. It's not ours. Jesus is the main character in the story of all the universe. And it's the same God, that same Jesus, who is choosing you today. And these are the words of Jesus from John 15. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. As we go today, brothers and sisters, we can be prepared to share. We must be prepared to share. Not about a religion or a list of steps, but about a Savior named Jesus who gave himself for us, that loves us, is going to walk with us. I don't have all the answers. I only need one. <laughs> it's him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know there's someone here, and they have yet to believe in you. I pray this morning they would just say, Jesus, save me from my sin and make me new. And Lord, thanks that that's all it takes. <laughs> That's all it takes. We just say, Lord, we need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. That's it, Lord. That's, that's your requirement is, is neediness. So thank you for our neediness, Father. For us as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, prepare us to share. Give us eyes to see the places we have favor. Lord, we even we confess this morning that we're not that even we sometimes avoid. We have chosen comfort over faithfulness. And we repent of that this morning, Jesus. And we ask you to give us clarity so we might be used. Give us words of your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy to people. Give us your love and your truth. Holy Spirit, speak through our mouths. We don't know what to say a lot of times, but you do. And you said when we open our mouths, you'd speak through us. So do that, God. Give us confidence that you'll show up. And Spirit, give us the expectation that matches yours. Don't let the lie 
fill our lives. Help us as we go. I pray for these students as they go to campus, God. There's a ton of hard stuff going on. A ton of friends. There's backstabbing. There's gossip. There's drama at home. There's hurt. Father, where they have such confidence that you aren't some far off and distant God, but you're the God that walks right with them. You're a shepherd to your sheep, Lord. Would they go in your power, Lord, and your courage to step into the places of darkness on their campuses with joy, with encouragement, with an uplifting word and an arm? Use them, God. Send them out. Thank you for the youth ministries represented here today. Pray for your special blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen.